Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. This is Adele Sweetwood, author of The Analytical Marketer, How to Transform Your Marketing Organization. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com, which is also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. This episode of the Marketing Book Podcast is sponsored by Content Marketing World 2017 this September. I'm going to be there. How about you? Content Marketing World is the one event where you can learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry, including several authors who have been guests on the Marketing Book Podcast. You will leave the conference with all the materials you need to take a content marketing strategy back to your team and to implement a content marketing plan that will grow your business. To register and get the best price, do two things. First, go to marketingbookpodcast.com and click on the Content Marketing World banner Make sure to go through marketingbookpodcast.com so they'll know I sent you. Seriously, there's a bottle of scotch in it for me for everyone who registers through marketingbookpodcast.com. Then, for the lowest price, when you register, make sure to use promo code marketingbook and they'll knock $100 off your ticket price. $100. Think about it. That's $100 you can spend buying both of us drinks once you get there and still have money left over. I'll have more details after the interview. Today, we welcome Adele Sweetwood to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about her book, The Analytical Marketer, How to Transform Your Marketing Organization, published by Harvard Business Review Press. Adele Sweetwood is the head of global marketing for SaaS, the world's largest independent analytics company, where she leads over 420 marketers, analysts, and other specialists. At SAS, she led the transformation of the marketing organization to meet the challenges and opportunities of data and analytics in a globalized market. And interesting fact, she, like your host and his wife, is a big Downton Abbey fan. So Adele, congratulations on the analytical marketer and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. So since your name is Adele, I just feel like I have to say, hello, it's me. You're not the first person, sorry to to burst that bubble, but you're not the first person. I've actually had entire verses of songs sung to me. Oh, wow. That's great. Well, you know, it appeared to me that if you go to a function for your company or some other networking thing, you don't even have to have a tag that says Adele. It could just say, hello, it's me. Exactly. (laughs) That's perfect. Yeah. So your company, SAS, is spelled S-A-S, and it is, as I mentioned, it's also a developer of analytics software. In North Carolina, you're the first guest 
from the great Tar Heel state of North Carolina on the Marketing Book Podcast. And the company is also the world's largest privately held software business. And it's software is used most by the Fortune 500 based on the research that I did. But just for the folks in Great Britain who might be wondering, company spelled SAS. Dell is not a member of the Special Forces Unit of the British <laughs> Army. And she is not working for Scandinavian Airlines, SAS, the flag carrier of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark. So got about 40% of the audience that's not in the U.S. So we're, uh, we don't want to we don't want to forget about those folks. Well, that, I don't think we will. There's a lot of good customers from SAS there, too. So we're yeah, good. Yeah, and you mentioned you've been traveling the first part of this year overseas. So we're going to actually want to talk about a few things that are different in some of the different areas of the world you've been to. But let me start with just an excerpt from the book to set the stage and lots of questions I have. And I think the listeners are going to be very interested in this. So you said, while there are many books and university courses that cover marketing analytics, data management, and even more on the subject of organizational management, my goal with this book is to provide other marketers like me a unique guide that combines those subjects. In short, this is the book I wish I had had when I led the marketing transformation at, at SAS. I've written this book to share what we did and how we did it and to provide insights and lessons to others like you who are also reinventing your marketing organizations for the digital analytic age. My hope is that in the pages that follow, I provide you with a firsthand practical account of how to create a new marketing culture that thrives on and adds value through data and analytics. By sharing our story, as well as additional perspectives from other leading companies such as Lenovo, Visa, and Comerica Bank, this book reveals a new set of best practices to help guide your marketing organization's analytical transformation. So, <laughs> Adele, in the book, you explain that analytics are driving enormous transformation in how even state-of-the-art marketing departments are organized and staffed and led and, and run and how they, how they interact with other parts of the organization. Sum up the landscape that marketers are facing these days. You know, I, I think it's such a great time to be in marketing that always is indicative of a ton of opportunity and being overwhelmed with a ton of opportunity. And that, that seems like what I hear from marketers and what we experienced ourselves was just seeing this flood of new channels, new ways we could engage and, and interact with our customers and prospects, new communication styles, new types of content. And, and this growth and this explosion of channels, of technology, of content, all created this you know, plethora of data and information for, our, for which is, again, a really good thing, but also a challenging type of opportunity that all of that combined with the fact that as a marketing organization, typically, you know, marketers think I have a message, I have a product, I need to tell you about it. Now marketers have to pay a lot more attention to what our customers and prospects already know and how do they want to be communicated to. And the customer has so much more control of their inter interactions with us and we have to pay so much more attention to it. So, you know, I think the landscape is this combination of, uh, you know, all this opportunity with new channels and new engagement strategies and new content that leads to more and more data and information, but it shifts our strategy and design to be, to, to need to be more data and analytics driven because the customer is going to demand that they're not going to just be open to anything, anytime, 
anywhere. So all of our strategies have to shift. And that's where it doesn't matter what size company you are, how much data you have, what you know information you have at your fingertips, you have to think about the way you do marketing differently. And in the book, you mentioned, you used an expression I'd heard elsewhere, marketing has gone from madmen to math men and women. What does an analytical marketer look like these days? I, it just, it's so, here's my, my issue. It, it seems like there's this muscle memory going back a hundred years of what marketing is. And there's a lot of people that are in marketing who I think I've heard them referred to as press release marketers. They, they know how to do news releases. And that's about it. And it's almost this enormous turnover between the skills that are, that are coming in or that are needed versus what's, what's already there. Can you talk a bit about who this analytical marketer is and what they look like and, and how they're different? Yeah, I, I think that I, I'm always careful because I still am a, a believer in the value of intuition, creativity, really your your knowledge base, your experience and what you know about your your product or your your market or your customer or whatever, th- those are still incredibly valuable and relevant skills to to maintain. That doesn't change. The the difference in terms of the types of skills I'm looking for is those types of skills are then enhanced with an understanding and appreciation for technology for for the digital world we live in for data and analytics as part of our decision making path and and really you know there isn't any marketing today that i'm aware of that doesn't have a digital or or data component to it so so it's it's the norm of what we expect the level of analytical marketing you might do is going to vary depending on what different types of roles you play within a company. But there isn't a single marketer in my organization that doesn't have some baseline analytical knowledge, data respect, if you will, or or data, really a respect and an understanding for data as part of what they need to do in terms of design and decision making. Then that goes all the way through to what, what I believe we need in marketing today that's very different, which is more of a more sophisticated level of analytical marketer, which is someone like a data scientist in marketing or a data visualization analyst or a segmentation analyst, someone that's doing this with the data and the analysis and the information all day long. But I think that they are also, they, for that, for us, some of those people were your traditional marketer maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, but they're now more sophisticated in what they do because they have more technology, more tools, more information than they've ever had before. They, they've really been able to upskill everything they've done and, and really had higher value to the marketing process. And then, of course, everything in between. So analytical marketer to me just means, hey, I'm, I, I understand the world I do. To, the marketing I do today is different. The world is different. I can use data and, and analytics and processes to make sure that the marketing that I'm designing is have has the highest value in return for the company and delivers the best customer experience. Um, and, and I could do that because I have all this available to me that I never had before. It's interesting. There was another book on the show called The Big Data Driven Business mm-hmm. by Sean Callahan was the co-author I interviewed. And he talked in the, in the book about how, you know, big data is like the military having night vision goggles all of a sudden. <laughs> It just <laughs> it, it it made it so much better and so much more efficient, and mm-hmm. there's not so much to be uh, really afraid of. So, in the first chapter, you explain why marketing organizations need to change. So, I think 
All right. We, we, I understand that. You understand that. Maybe a lot of listeners yep. do. But my sense is that there's still a lot of pushback and, and resistance to change because change is you know, kind of terrifying. What, what are some of the downsides that you've seen of marketing organizations that aren't changing? They're just not, oh, let's, let's put it in a Downton Abbey perspective. <laughs> there was, remember Lord Grantham, he mm-hmm. ran his estate a certain way, right. and he didn't want to evolve and, and change. And then he visited a cousin in Scotland and saw that they were losing their estate because they weren't progressing and, 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 and updating everything. Is, is there a similar story there for companies that, that just aren't or can't seem to evolve their marketing organization? You know, I, I think there is. I think you know, that that's an example of, of a different kind of fear, right? And you can be afraid of technology and afraid of the data and the analytics and all the, op- but you're probably more afraid of failing as an organization. And when you, if you're not modernizing, if you're not, you know, whether it's an analytical marketing transformation or digital transformations or other elements of the business that are really driven to the way our customers expect us to be interacting with them, then you're going to fail as a business. You're going to start to see a diminishing set of returns overall. And you're not going to deliver, as a marketing organization, you're not going to deliver the value to the company that you should be delivering. And I think that's a big shift as well is, you know, if within the organization, the marketing company, the marketing department is still seen as a service organization and simply, you know, doing the press releases, doing the ads, doing the events, and not seen as, the, the core to where our customer data and our customer information has the most value and is brought into a design process from a strategy perspective, you know, what parts of the business do we digitize? What parts of, you know, how do we integrate customer experiences consistency across, consistently across the company? How do we design in a, a, a more engaging way for our, our customers and our prospects, whether it's current or new? Those are conversations that are different conversations than you might have had 10 or 15 years ago. So I think the first sign would be if you're not having those conversations, then then you're you're not set up for success to begin with in terms of transformation. The interesting thing to me has been, and we talked about my travels, is no one has come up to me and said that we don't need to do this. <laughs> this is all a fad, Adele. <laughs> Yeah, we, we know we need to do this and, and we need to figure out how to do it within our company. And that might change by industry or that might change by, you know, the way they're structured, the size of the company. And for the most part, somebody's doing some piece of it, right? So, you know, the there's been so much change in our industry that, you know, the analytical part is almost, you know, in some industries, it was always there. And now it's just gotten more of a, of a front front row seat. In other industries, it's brand new, but all these industries have been, you know, accumulating more data. All of them have introduced some sort of analysis into their processes. All of them have begun a digital transformation process of some sort. So all of that's connected, whether you call it analytics and marketing or analytics for the company, you know, it just feels to me like as organizations, we're running more cohesively when we all stop, put the customer at the center and design our strategies around the customer. And right. you only can, you know, you, you're going to do that when you have the information to tell you about your customer. Right. But you're also dealing with, you probably talk to more larger businesses than you do smaller ones. Is that true? Um, I, I think both, especially um, I was in, in the Nordics recently where you've got smaller companies in general. So I, I think it's both. And this is not a big company problem. It's not even a big data problem. 
the companies that have volumes and volumes of data, they have one set of problems and the companies that don't have enough data have a different set of problems, but they both have problems. And, and the, the bottom line is there's ways to fix both. So I really, the conversation of analytics and marketing of, of really looking at the, the transformational process from a business perspective, how should I be organized? What kind of talent do I need? Uh, you know, how do I build in this culture of analytics? That doesn't matter whether you're a, a 20 person organization or a, a you know, 2000 person organization. Right. So let's jump ahead because there's a few other things that I just, I can't <laughs> wait to share with the listener. And one of them is one of the challenges you talk about for marketers is to ensure that their company is present and relevant. And you kept talking about being present and relevant through the, the 60% stage or more of the, the customer's decision journey. Can you explain what you mean when you say that marketers need to make sure their company is present and relevant throughout that 60%? And you should probably explain the 60%. Sure. The, and there's even more different, different types of reports now that are available versus when I wrote the book. But essentially, the, the reports from whether it's Serious Decisions or Google or Forrester, we, we talk about the, the buying journey for customers and again, this could be B2B customers, B2C customers. You know, in the past, a, a customer might have uh, an idea, idea of what kind of issues they're trying to resolve. And they might go, you know, the, the, before I'm talking in the past, like long past, they might have gone and to an event or downloaded a paper or, you know, baseline information before they ever talked to vendors. But today, our customers and our prospects are, you know, they're part of communities, they're listening to podcasts, they're watching videos and webinars, they're um, engaged in all kinds of information. And, you know, like any, anybody in the world today, if, if you want to find out about something, all you have to do is a search on Google, and you've got a plethora of information. So the, the reality is, our customers today are, are well down that decision making process in their in a very self directed way before they even have a conversation with a vendor. They have access to so much more information than they've ever had before. So from a, from a sales and marketing perspective, my context is the idea of somebody being a pure cold lead or a cold call, that's gone. I mean, if they're cold, they're probably dead because they're not, you know, For they're not. Reasons. Right, exactly, right? Who's not engaged with some level of activity in the, in the space that they may be in, whether it's industry level or, or functional area. So they're really much more informed. And so our role as marketers is whether that's 60% of the journey or 70% of the journey or, or 80% of the journey, we have to make sure that we're present in the right channels and then we're relevant in the types of content they need based on that journey across the full customer journey. So it, it's a content issue. It's a timing issue. It's a channel issue. And what I found from an organizational design perspective, and this is sort of another one of those aha moments for people that are reading the book or when I talk to them, you know, we had designed ourselves, like many other organizations, as very channel-focused marketing. You have an email marketing team, and you have the digital advertising team, and you have the social media marketing team, and the search guys are over there, and you know the, the event people and the campaign, but you, know, you got people kind of in their channels all going after that customer with a message. And it might be the right channel, it might be the right message, uh, but if they're all different across all those channels, 
that's going to be a problem. Um, it could be that you're using a channel for a particular audience that doesn't care about that channel. That's a different problem. Um, so we have this very siloed approach to marketing. And when you stopped and paid more attention to that journey and where the customers were along that journey and what they might be interested in seeing in terms of the type of content or rele relevancy part, as well as what channel their preference, they, the channel preference they might've had, um, then you have a, a different type of dialogue with that customer. It's much more driven by them, much more coordinated and it's more customer-focused marketing, not channel-focused marketing. So all of that combined, again, with this idea that you've got to design to be present and relevant, you have to design to the customer experience and the customer journey, then you have a just much more effective marketing plan design, campaign plan design that's coordinated, messages are more aligned, creative is more aligned. You're going to get better results. You're going to get fewer opt-outs. You're going to get higher conversion rates. You're going to get broader awareness and reach. You're going to get higher engagement scores. All of that, you start to see shift towards better, ultimately better results, which hopefully then leads to pipeline build and one revenue. Right. And you, you talk about it as, uh, you refer to it as channel convergence. Yes. In the book. And it's interesting, in Rebecca Lieb's new book, which is called Content, the Atomic Particle of All Marketing, she has a whole chapter about how this channel convergence is not happening very well. And the, the way it's that... It's hard. <laughs> oh, please. And the way that companies are organizing their content is like you've just described, rather than around the content itself being somewhat agnostic of the pipe that it's getting to them. Let me ask you one other thing. Uh, you, you quote a colleague at, at SAS, Jennifer Chase, who said that for marketers of the past, the campaign was at the center of everything that was done. And now everything is centered around the customer, campaign customer. So can you explain a little bit more about what, what she means there and, and, and why it's significant? You've already started to touch on it as it relates yeah. to channel convergence. The reference there is, as we organize as marketing teams, we organized around a topic area or category, so ultimately a campaign. Mm -hmm. I have this product area or this solution area for this industry or this persona, and I'm going to design based on what I know about that group of people. So I'm going to have a set of demographics about the people in the financial services industry that might be interested in fraud. So, you know, I have that list. Well, the reality is they might be someone that's interested in fraud, but they also might be interested in data management at a different point in time, analytics at another point in time, marketing analytics at another point in time. So they have different, they're taking different journeys. And we had a tendency to design campaigns, not just from a channel or siloed perspective across those channels, but also based on what we wanted to tell them versus what they may want to hear from us. And so again, you're shifting your design when you start looking at the data and you're building nurturing campaigns, for example, in a cross-functional way meaning that almost like we talked about convergence of channels, convergence of campaigns. You might start out in this campaign on fraud, but you might show an interest in learning more about some data management topics. So I might switch you into that campaign where in the past we might have said, no, 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 it's a fraud. It's going to stay in the fraud campaign. I'm going to keep talking to you about fraud, whether you care about it or not. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. I mean, you get those, you get those emails, right? Yeah. So it, it's sort of one of those. Not from your company. 
No, of course not. But the point being, you're paying more attention to what their interests and behaviors are when you design versus just caring about, you know, marketers have tended to be, you know, I've got to design this campaign to generate X number of leads. So I need a list that's this big and I need this many channels. And I mean, so very basic in, you know, to get from point A to point B, I need this many. And what we're trying to get them to say is don't worry about the output as much as you're worrying about the experience and the customer, you'll get actually more in the end of what you need or higher quality. Yeah. So the shift of their thinking. There was another part uh, kind of related to that, that uh, yet another one of your colleagues, Matthew Folk, I think it was. One of the, the expressions in marketing that just makes my skin crawl is when I hear a company talking about blasting out an email. Oh, uh, not, it just it, it's so wrong. It's like hearing somebody use the, a word or an expression incorrectly. It, anyway, <laughs> he, he was talking about customer centricity and he talked about how you know, using analytical data and so forth, you can move your email marketing from blast to conversation. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to be using that henceforth to say, no, no, I don't want to hear about blast. I want to hear about conversation. And then he, he mentioned that blast email messages are, are starting to get smaller and smaller or, or go away because people are able to, I guess, segment better the communication that a, a smaller but more engaged group might want. Correct. Yeah. And again, that's a mindset shift. Yeah. Marketers like big lists, They're ah, like yeah. long lists of names. We're going to buy all these lists. And so that's where the whole blast thing comes from is, you know, how much your mass marketing. We don't do any mass marketing. That's not we're, we don't do that anymore. We we all have. But you, you really cannot do that anymore. And, and we don't want to. It's not very effective. And, you know, the conversation when you shift to thinking about what does the customer care about? Where are they at in their buying journey or their decisions decision journey? What is their preference in terms of channels? What's their preference in terms of content? Where are the customers at that we need to be regardless? So there's multiple strategies there. Then you start designing very differently, and you ultimately you know have a you know, your list might be smaller, but it's a better, stronger list in terms of conversion or or opportunity. And, and that's really, again, changing mindsets of people to understand that, that we did what we called forensics, data forensics exercises on our customer journeys. And we use that information internally to help people understand the types of experiences we were creating that weren't maybe very positive so that we could help them understand why they needed to change. And, yes. and that's a big change management, buy-in, culture shift kind of approach is if you use your own data and analysis to tell your own stories, you will sell people's perceptions. You'll, you'll change their perceptions to how to do it the right way. You'll get better buy-in. Yes. And that brings to mind the story. I think you upset or, or worried some of your sales counterparts at one point. Can you talk about how you used analytics to determine the ROI of all those live events that you yeah. were doing at one point? Yeah, again, you know, just taking a look at the information that, you know, we were doing hundreds of events, all different sizes, um, and the return, you know, just wasn't there. And we could track the, the, this is pure demand generation, lead management all the way through to opportunities or pipeline and revenue. And, and it's simply not there. And no one, you know, the, the perception is, well, you know, we have to be there. We have to have a presence. If we're not there, they think we won't, we're not in this market or whatever the case might be. But the reality is that's not turning into valuable exchanges with the client. 
it doesn't mean you don't do any at all. It just means you get more selective. And once we started being able to show them digital journeys and digital interactions and social interactions that actually delivered a higher return on quality and influence and brand, the conversation shifted and changed. Because again, the costs are very different. The number of resources it takes are very different. And it's just getting people to, to understand there's, there's new opportunities out there. Things shift around all the time. Again, there's, there's nothing that will replace the face-to-face interaction of the right people at an event. They're, they're still highly valuable. But, but you know, we had kind of gone overboard. Just yeah. like with the mass with the mass emailing, you go overboard. On I think it. the quote of this this interview will have to be: "We don't do mass marketing anymore." Did you hear that, <laughs> listener? Yeah, <laughs> but no, we don't. doesn't mean to stop all your marketing. But let's talk a little bit more about the sales. Because is there any more you can talk about how the use of analytics built closer relationships with your your sales counterparts? I know sales and marketing alignment is a, is is a big topic for a lot of businesses and, and listeners. Absolutely, the the process. Of, of that relationship, the changing of that relationship certainly has been, it, it's ongoing, it never stops. But I, I think if you boil it down to a few key components, you know, salespeople are numbers driven. So when you can show them data, and you can show them, you know, results and information, then you have a different set of conversations. And, and that's always been the case. And I think for a lot of marketers, you know, we've always been, been able to be empowered with metrics. So I can show you a lot about and I've always been able to do this in, in, in our, our role here. So this goes before, you know, way before the book, a lot about just your, your core metrics, the performance of the marketing. And, and then you can have different conversations about where you might change investments or where you have pipeline gaps or whatever the case might be. But I think what's changed in terms of a, the next level of credibility with the sales organization has to do with being able to show them trends and and things like pathing analysis and attribution modeling to show them where we're going to use the intelligence we have about all this data and information to fine tune our design efforts and continually improve the quality of marketing not just the pure output and and that that's a different kind of conversation and it helps them understand digital more i know in the book we talk about the digital footprint which is a great tool for both marketing and sales for them to understand that the digital journeys our customers are taking um, and how does that even change the way they might sell to someone. It seems like the data can only help but increase the communication, which is so important for the, the sales and the marketing groups. Now, you mentioned one word. I want to ask you to follow up on that. Can you explain? Now, you don't have to explain this to your colleagues, I'm sure, but explain the concept of attribution mm-hmm. and why it's uh, tricky and sometimes problematic for marketers who are trying to you know, connect the dots. Absolutely. Back to, you know, the plethora of channels. We have lots of channels, um, lots of messages, lots of content, um, lots of points of interaction. And basically attribution modeling is trying to figure out which of those interaction points, assets, activities are the most valuable at what point in time or what combination of those results in the highest return. And that it influences scoring models and design, right? If if I can tell that, you know, someone is is very much a heavy search user and they read the economist and they're part of this community, you know, what are they doing and and how often do they turn into an opportunity for us or at what stage then I have a profile of something that can influence the way I might score and model something. 
So it's tricky because, you know, the, there, it's, there's a human component to it that says, you know, people's behavior changes. And, and so you're going to start with a particular model and then you're going to see trends or shifts and then you're going to have to make modifications to it. So none of the predictive or advanced analytical techniques, scoring models, uh, none of that pathing analysis, none of it is one and done. None of it is, is you know, so scientific that we know it's going to be the same every time because we're talking about human interactions. So right. they're going to change. And it seems like it's a problem where a lot of marketers want to give credit to, I guess, the first touch or, or yeah. maybe the, the very last touch and then mm-hmm. put all their, you know, allocate more resources there. Right. It reminded me of years ago, we had a client and the, the client would say, uh, it was a legal firm, and they would say, well, how'd you hear about us? And they'd say, well, we heard your radio commercials. Well, they weren't running radio. They hadn't for 15 years. <laughs> so they'd say, well, I, yeah, I guess we should. Exactly. Put, no. So, right, well, my favorite one was the, you know, when sales comes to me and says, well, we need more inbound leads. Inbound leads are, you know, people coming to your website and submitting a request form or chatting with our contact center, you know, I'm like, okay, but do you understand how we get inbound leads? You do outbound activity to drive people to your website. So you can't, I mean, there, you can't attribute everything to inbound. Like, wh- how did they get there? Yeah. What did they do to get there is what's important, not that they got there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just all those different conversations. So you're right. I think, though, that's why it's sort of a continual process. And you have to be careful not to to make it. There, there isn't an exact component to it. It's, it's test and learn, test and learn. And it's going to shift. But I do think there are paths, right? And, and when you find those paths, how do you build them into the design and I think back to organizational structure that brings the, the data and the analytical people that are maybe in the advanced analytics and trend analysis and modeling all the time, side by side with the marketers that are designing all the time, you have a different set of conversations. You know, I, I think somebody needs to write a book. It's just popped into my head. So please, anyone, a marketing book, and the title needs to be Stop Looking for the Easy Button. <laughs> the problem is it's not going to sell very well because everyone's <laughs> looking for the easy button <laughs> as it relates to you know modern marketing and sales. Let me just quickly ask you two other big questions. And I'm, I'm sorry to keep mentioning your colleagues, but come on, you got more than 400 working for you. One, one of them was from Barbara Anthony, who said that, it, it, talking about content marketing, and she said that your company was, from a content marketing standpoint, was one of the worst offenders at creating what she called random acts of content. Yep. So brutal honesty there from Barbara. What did she mean by random acts of content? And and how did you all then address that? You know, converge your content marketing as best you could. Sure. And I think it's still another, again, ongoing challenge that, you know, content marketing has come into its own in the last, what, five, seven years? I, I think amongst us, but I still think there's lots of folks that are just just scratching the surface. Probably, yeah, absolutely. I'm just thinking the overall, you know, the emphasis where you started seeing the term used. Right, amongst marketers particularly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, content's not new. Content marketing was the new topic. And I think what, you know, as we saw all these new channels come to fruition, what became really obvious very quickly, very soon in the process was in order to get somebody to pay attention to, to a digital channel or a social channel or a community site or whatever, you have to have good content. That's the reality, right? You have to produce and and develop and whatever serve up good content. So there just became this, 
you know, a lot of effort underway to create content, but all content isn't necessarily good content. <laughs> and content without purpose. I think most content is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just became, you know, content without purpose, just again, it, you know, we started having all these, a lot of the parts of the organization, well, here's a good piece of content, promote this piece of content, no pr- promote my piece of content. Seems no pr- like a good idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you've got a website full of content that, you know, is just too hard to navigate. So again, we were the victims of our own passion about content and and random acts of content. And so we had to put in place more structure around what content gaps do we have? How do we do more uh, formal content audits? We had to pay a lot more attention to content performance. What different types of content perform in what channels best? You know, it's great that you have a 45-minute video or whatever it is, but that's not going to work in an ad. Right. You know, I mean, so there's just really paid a lot of attention to, to format structure and, uh, and purpose and, and then made sure that it was the full plan. You know, we talk about the channel convergence, the content convergence had to happen too. <laughs> and so that you were coordinating around, you know, these are all the right channels. Here's the right content, the right messages um, based on the customer's behaviors and, and um, preferences. And that's how you design a go-to-market plan. Right. And not to forget about the focus around the customer. Exactly. Customer <laughs> at the center. Not the, let's say, not the product people. Not what the they content. Wanna, right. <laughs> yeah. One, the only other thing I want to ask about in the book was, can you talk a bit about how marketing analytics affected the attitudes and, and practices of, you know, your financial counterparts and also uh, your C-suite? So I always have to confess that since I work for an analytics and data company, I probably didn't have to sell the C-suite too much. Well, that's so, a relief. Yeah. You know, so I'm not, I'm not going to you know, fool anybody to believing that I had to convince anybody at the C-suite okay. that we should be leveraging data and analytics. But I, also, I did have to show the value of marketing by using data analytics in the way we do things, right? So, so that still remains the same. And, and like I said early on, it becomes really important when you're on this journey that you use the data and, and, and analysis of what you're doing today to tell the stories internally of how you need to change it and what changes need to happen in order to get the buy-in and support for that change. That's an especially important conversation with IT because you need their support from a data and a systems and a governance perspective. Um, and so them as part of that journey and joint designing with us it was absolutely critical and, and really, you know, that relationship is, is um, vital to the success. We talked about sales already. That's an important relationship um, uh, to make sure that there's alignment from an objective setting standpoint and from a design standpoint for where investments are going to be. And then on the financial side, you know, most marketing organizations are a, a high spend cost center for the, for the company. So we spend a lot of time making sure that our financial counterparts understand the results of these investments, the outcomes. So we have, you know, financial partners, if you will, working with us to help understand the business, which again, that's the critical piece is for for a level of understanding, ongoing communication. And we, we spent time to build this guiding coalition of people that were really about how do we how do we create this analytical culture and marketing and and put the customer at the center. Uh, from design standpoint, and and everybody will buy in once you start to see the stories. Warning: It's easier said than done. But <laughs> if you can move those mountains, you will really benefit. And you know, 
the things you're describing is also something that was touched in the book, and that talked about leadership. And big part of that is it reminds me of another book that was on the podcast called The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader and written Patrick Barwise and Thomas Barta. And Barta had been a McKinsey partner, and they talked about a lot of the things that are in your book, uh, particularly as it relates to being a good leader. So you can't be, you know, it's, it's just not going to work if you're arguing with IT, if you think finance are morons. <laughs> you gotta, right, you got to practice leadership. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they did extensive you know, you're with an analytics company. You, you would have liked the studies they did. It was just amazing that showed that the most effective marketers were the ones that had marketing leadership qualities, which are slightly different from like general leadership. So Adele, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I'm going to stick with the data analytics, the value of data analytics to understand your story, use it to tell your story. And don't don't look at them as you, you use the term mountains a few minutes. Not mountains. You're gonna find the hills to conquer, and they add up to the mountain because there's there's always this is a process of change that takes a while, and there's always opportunity for more transformation. We're still transforming. There's not a finish line. No. <laughs> it reminds me there was another author on the show recently, Laura Bush, who wrote powering content. She had a graphic design background and wrote this fantastic new book about content marketing. And in the book, she explains that the greatest gains and the most comfort came when she started to embrace analytics (laughs) and and the quantitative (laughs) world. And she then became obsessed with Henry Ford's innovations in manufacturing. So it was, it's true. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Adele, what books have inspired your work and career? You know, that you, that's a great question. I, I, I think from a leadership standpoint, I, I have always been a big Jim Collins fan. I know he hasn't written anything recently, but he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to, right? His, everything he talks about is still so important. I love a good Seth Godin on the creative side. One of you know the the gentleman that wrote the forward for my book has written lots of books on analytics. Tom Davenport, I think he puts a very nice description of analytics there. There's some great books on digital out right now. So I, I, there's been lots of, of different books that influenced me, different people. I, I absolutely love that you're quoting people from the book because one of the things that was important to me in writing this book was the, the voices of the people that made this happen. A, a single person doesn't make this happen. It, it's a practitioner written book by a lot of practitioners. You know what else that occurred to me in reading this book, just I don't know a whole lot about your company other than what, what we've talked about, but it, it's not an environment where failure is not tolerated. In other words, it seems like there was a lot of things you were trying and you were free to try them as long as you could you know, measure them and, and find your way. I got the impression that, that that might be perhaps the kind of company it is where you're, you're free to experiment and, and, and innovate and iterate and, and trust in the data instead of the hunch. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think most successful software companies are, are made that way. When you're highly innovative, you have to have this fail fast and, and learn, you know, test and learn mentality. And that that's in marketing now, we've got more at our fingertips to be able to do that than ever before. So why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you adopt that culture? So Adele, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? So I love to hear what people think about the book. So if you do have a copy or if you have comments or questions, I'm very active in LinkedIn and Twitter. So easy to find me there. There's not too many Adele Sweetwoods in this world. And of course, the book is available on Amazon and, and also through Thass and other, other opportunities there. So please connect with us. 
great. The name of the book is The Analytical Marketer, How to Transform Your Marketing Organization. The author is Adele Sweetwood. Adele, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. Hello, it's me. And that closes the book on episode 134 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And to register for Content Marketing World, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com, click on the Content Marketing World banner so they'll know I sent you. And then for the very best price, enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK. And if you have any feedback on the show, I would love to hear from you. Just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave me a message or tweet at me. My Twitter handle is marketingbook or connect with me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett. And please join us next time as we welcome Anthony Anarino back to the show to talk about his new book, The Lost Art of Closing, Winning the Ten Commitments That Drive Sales. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 